Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. If you do not have a copy of the Scripture with you, pay close attention to the reading of God's Word this evening. I invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel of John 23, 32 to 46. And that will be our sermon text for this evening. The word of God says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Several years ago, I overheard a conversation in which One friend asked another, You like Bob Dylan? What's your favorite Dylan song? And he answered, Hmm, give me a sec to think about it. And while he was thinking about it, I also was thinking about it. Blowing in the wind, knocking on heaven's door, the times are changing. These are the songs that came to my mind. Finally, the friend of the friend said, here it is. Stuck in the middle with you. That's my favorite Dylan song. And his friend said, dude, are you serious? That's not even a Dylan song. 
And to the surprise of many, perhaps even some of you, it's actually not a Dylan song. It's by a band called Steelers Wheels. Now, I mention it here because of a line in that song by Steelers Wheels. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. And they performed this song in the style of Dylan and even sounded like Dylan because they were trying to make a point. But that's beside my point at this time. What I want you to know is that whenever I hear that song, I think of this story that we just read. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. And now, whenever you hear that song, you will think of this story from Luke 23 as well. Because that was Inception. And Inception is now complete. Well, just as many people are confused about the singer of that song... Many people are also confused about the Savior and this story, which I will get to in just a moment. Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus has been portrayed as the Savior of the world who welcomes sinners, receives sinners, shows them mercy, forgives them, and grants them new life. I want you to know that this story, and in this story, Jesus meets a man who puts all of that to the test. You might say that the man that Jesus encounters in Luke 23 puts Jesus to the ultimate test. This is the ultimate test of his mission of Jubilee. Remember many months ago when we were in Luke 4 and Jesus gave his mission statement and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what we want to see in this story is we want to see if Jesus is still willing and able to accomplish his mission for an extreme case, for a man in dire straits suspended between heaven and hell. The man to which I'm referring is one of the robbers. He's a man who was an ordinary, common Jewish man. And like all male Jewish kids, babies, he was circumcised according to the law of God on the eighth day. This is a man who grew up and became aware of the law of God and the religious customs of his people. Things like that were in the drinking water in the Judeo world, the Judean world and in and around Jerusalem. They were part and parcel of the Jewish social life and social structure. It's akin to all of you who grew up in the South in the Bible Belt, or as Flannery O'Connor refers to it as the Jesus haunted South. It's everywhere. So he's probably exposed to the preaching of John the Baptist, and perhaps even at some point he was baptized by John the prophet. It's possible that he heard all of these things that John was preaching and respond. For the gospel writers tell us that Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him at the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So I simply say that there's a chance that even this robber was baptized by John at the Jordan River. Now, if that's the case, I imagine it was sort of... uh, 
a case like you find in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Like he's baptized in the way that Delmar was baptized. And he comes out saying, the preacher done washed my sins away and even cleansed me of that piggly wiggly that I knocked off in Yazoo. It would be that kind of thing. Well, all things considered, this man was in and around Judea and Jerusalem. And there is even a chance that he heard Jesus preach. Maybe he saw a miracle performed. Maybe he heard a sermon by Jesus. After all, he knew that Jesus had something to do with the kingdom, something about a king. More than likely, this robber came from a poor family. Maybe he grew up in the projects. Maybe he suffered father hunger like many poor young men do in our day and age. Maybe he just fell in with the wrong crowd. But whatever the case, we know that this man at some point in his life became a lawbreaker. And he was a lawbreaker in such a case that he was sentenced to death. Perhaps he was a dangerous criminal who stole by using violence and force. No one knows how long his life of crime lasted. We don't know much about this man at all. It might have lasted months or years or weeks. It might have been one time and he got busted. But what we do know is that he was caught and tried and convicted. Whatever his specific actions were, they were deemed to be capital crimes. And so this man is being sentenced to death for those crimes. By the time we meet him, however old he is, whatever he's done, we meet him at the very end of his life. We catch up with him as he's reached the end of death row and we meet him just a few hours before his death by crucifixion. This is a man who has wasted his life. He's wasted his life stealing, destroying, terrorizing He's been playing with fire for many years. And when you play with fire, you eventually get burned. And maybe he didn't know this slogan that we see and hear in our movies and around town. But you do the crime, you do the time. Only in his case, there's not much time left. Near the city of Jerusalem, there was a place called the Skull. And there are a lot of reasons why scholars think it was called the Skull. It might have looked like a skull to people. Some people think it was called the skull because so many people were executed there that it became a kind of boneyard, although bones weren't left around in that area. But whatever the case, it's called the skull and everyone knew that that's a place of execution. Three men crucified that day on the skull on Calvary. Two of them were robbers. They might have even been partners in crime, but there's one in the middle, stuck in the middle who is considered to be a political revolutionary, an enemy of the state, a disturber of the peace. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, and that was the notice hung above his head. He's on the cross in the middle. The one the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers and the crowd all took turns insulting and mocking. You notice in the story that even the other robber chimed in, adding insult to injury. He shamelessly mocks and scoffs at Jesus without mercy. He's laying it on thick and heavy. One blasphemous comment after another. And you wonder why he would do that. Hanging on a cross next to Jesus, he is also being executed for his crimes. Why would he do this? And I have a theory about that. 
I think he did it because he wanted to draw attention away from himself to Jesus. The mobs could be brutal in their mistreatment of people who were crucified, poking at them. Soldiers could poke and prod them. And this man is trying to draw attention. He wants to identify with the crowd. Hey, I'm with you guys. I'm with you fellers. I'm not with him. Misery loves company, but this man wants the crowd to look away. Maybe he wants people to sympathize with him for just a moment. He wasn't such a bad guy after all. I mean, all he did was rob a little. Not like this Jesus guy who tried to shake down the whole world and flip things upside down. The first robber we met finds himself suspended between heaven and hell, between life and death, and he becomes reflective, contemplative. He begins to think about his life. As a Jewish man living in Roman-occupied Judea, he knew the process of crucifixion. He knew how this was going to play out. He knew that there would be joint dislocating strains. He knew there would be short gasps for breath. He knew about the delirium the elements that would persecute him, weather, insects, the glaring sun, perhaps cold wind. There would be unquenchable thirst. He had seen and heard this kind of thing through the course of his life. Crucifixion was very common in his day. These were not the only three people to have ever been crucified. So he's well aware of what he is facing and what he is experiencing And he knows that in the end, whether that's a few hours from now or even a few days from now, he knows that it's going to end with his shin bones being broken, that he will be gasping for breath. He will feel intense pain in his body, and then he will fade from this life. Again, this could go on for hours. This could go on for days. But either way, it's going to end the same way. He will lose consciousness and fade to black And it will be over. He's aware of the fact that he is suspended between heaven and hell. And in that moment, this robber begins to take inventory of his own life. He considers the consequences of his own sin and the punishment that is not only being inflicted on him now, but the punishments that await him in the afterlife. He knows that barring a last minute miracle, he will suffer death and pass into Hades, pass into Sheol, pass into the realm of darkness and death. He seems more aware than the other robber of how this is all going to end. An instant after death, he is going to meet the true and living God. He is going to face judgment and he is going to be sentenced to hell. He feels this in his bones. He feels this in his soul and he fears. While the other robber is shouting a barrage of insults and then even offering up a cynical prayer, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The gravity of the situation is weighing heavily on the first robber. Realizing that he was guilty of sin, realizing that he was deserving of punishment, feeling that he is just a few breaths away from an even worse torment than the one he's facing now, seeing that he had been playing with fire, even in the jaws of death, he turns and rebukes the other criminal. Don't you fear God? 
You're under the same sentence of condemnation. Truly, we are condemned justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. Deep inside him, something has changed. His pride has melted. His heart has broken. His spirit has yielded. And he does the most unexpected, unthinkable thing we can imagine. I think of this as an act of devil-may-care, reckless self-abandonment. He makes a last-ditch, here-goes-nothing, deathbed confession and request from the heart. He looks to Jesus and offers a prayer. Now, in the midst of this prayer, he is confessing that he was a guilty sinner, that his punishment was right and good and fair, and he is getting the due reward for his deeds. He's also confessing that Jesus is an innocent saint, that he's done nothing wrong. So he marks a distinction between who Jesus is and who he is. And as he compares himself to Jesus, he sees just how far short of the glory of God he has fallen. And so in this final act of desperation, he asks for the impossible. Hope against hope, he offers up this heartfelt prayer that was heard at the cross, is heard around the world, and more importantly, it's heard at heaven, at the throne of grace. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. So unlike the other robber, he is not saying, if you are the Christ... Save me from the pain and misery of this execution. That's what the other one wanted. He is saying, since you are the Savior, I confess you are the eternal King of kings. I believe and know that you will conquer death and reign beyond the grave. Save me from my sin, death, and hell. And welcome me into your reign and rule, my Lord. And what do you think Jesus would do? What would Jesus do for a sinful, law-breaking, hardened criminal in the last hours of his life? What would Jesus do for the man who, according to the other gospel writers, also spent the last two or three hours of his life insulting, cursing, and mocking him? What would Jesus do for a frantic, desperate sinner praying for mercy on his way to the grave? If you've been listening to the story of the gospel up to this point, you know what he would do. He would do the impossible. Jesus would do the impossible. And he does. Listen, he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise And it's with these words that Jesus proclaimed the good news to a poor man. He proclaimed liberty to a captive. He proclaimed recovery of life for a dead man. He proclaimed freedom for a man oppressed. And this dying thief found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What is not possible with men is possible with God, for nothing is impossible with God. And you have to love the way the story unfolds here. It's not that Jesus 
hung there for a few minutes and said, let me think about it. I'm not quite sure how I feel about this. You know, you deserve what you got. You made the decisions that led you to this point. Jesus doesn't take the man's request and throw it back into his teeth. The story unfolds in such a way that you get the impression that without a moment's hesitation, Jesus took upon himself all of the sins that the robber had ever committed and all of the punishment that the robber deserves. Even at this late hour, Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is no hatred, there is no animosity or wrath in Jesus' eyes. There is simply tender mercy and undying love. And in this story, we see mercy triumph over judgment. You all are familiar with John Newton, I think. John Newton is the former slave trader who wrote, he's best known for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. At the age of 82, John Newton said, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. John Newton's tombstone reads, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. At the age of 82, he remembers two things about his life. I'm a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. I wonder what the robber thought and how he felt when Jesus gave up his spirit and died. He had some time to think about what had just happened. I wonder if he doubted Jesus' promise even a little bit. For as you know, when evening fell, a soldier appeared and stood before the robbers. The soldier would grasp a short hardwood club and after a couple of swings. Legs were broken. And the robber knows it won't be long now. A few more tears, a few last groans and gasps. And then fade to black. And after darkness, light. After death, life. Jesus not only made a promise to the robber, but he kept the promise. And you can, in your imagination, see what's unfolding here. That as this man passes from this life, Jesus snatches the robber from the flames and saves him by his mercy. And that day, the robber appears before the gates of paradise. Smelling like smoke, as we like to say. A little singed around the edges. 
by the power of God's grace and mercy, he walks into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his Lord, his Savior, and his King. Jesus remembers him when he comes in his kingdom. Jesus welcomes sinners into his kingdom. I want you to see what unfolded in the story here. We say often that the uh, we talk about the power of prayer. We talk about how the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And here you see that the heartfelt prayer of a penitent sinner is powerful and effective. Why? It's only powerful and effective because of the one to whom the prayer is offered. Because the faithful heart of the Savior who hears the prayer is so mighty to save. Jesus had taught his followers throughout Luke's gospel. Ask for salvation and it will be given. Seek forgiveness and you will be, fine. You will be forgiven. You will find what you seek. Knock on heaven's door and the door will be opened to you. And so Jesus remembers the thief and grants his request. And I want you to know that he will do the same for you. Any of you, all of you. If you ask him by faith to remember you when he comes in his kingdom. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Some of you might remember this. In my first summer as the minister of this church, when we were still called the New Hope Church of Christ, I preached from Luke 23 on this very story. We had a fellowship meal after worship that day. And an older brother came up to me and he draped his arm around me and pulled me in close and whispered, So, is this your new gospel? Is this your new gospel? I asked, what do you mean? Is this my new gospel? And he went on to explain, well, you made it sound like anyone who prays and asks Jesus to save them will be saved. And then he said that the thief on the cross was saved only by an act of clemency. That he was saved as a special one-off case under unique circumstances. So we can't look to his story to find out how anyone should be saved. Because this is not an example of the way Jesus typically, ordinarily, usually saves sinners. Is this your new gospel? And so I answered him. No, this is not my new gospel. This is the old gospel. And it only sounds new to us because we haven't heard it before. It only sounds new to those who have heard a corrupted gospel. It sounds new to those who have forgotten the real thing. So no, this is not my new gospel. It is God's old gospel. The gospel that says Jesus receives sinners. He welcomes them by grace through faith into his kingdom. And if the man on the cross, the thief on the cross was saved in a unique way, in a way that no one else can be saved. That's terrible news because it means that no one can be saved. 
For if Jesus saved that man by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that's a unique circumstance, none of us can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But this is not an exception to the rule. It is the rule that this is how Jesus saves sinners. He saves sinners who are desperately in need of grace and know it. He saves sinners who cannot save themselves. He does for them what is impossible for them to do for themselves. He does what is impossible for man and only possible for God. So the story is good news for everyone, including you, especially those who know they are suspended between heaven and hell. St. Augustine pointed out in his reflection on this story that the story gives us two messages to consider. One, do not despair. One of the thieves was saved. Two, do not presume. One of the thieves was damned. I want to say to you that if you think you are too far gone, if you think that you are too far out of reach and that you cannot be saved because your case is so extreme, remember the way Jesus showed mercy to the thief on the cross and remembered him when he came in his kingdom. On the other hand, if you think that you are safe and secure just as you are, and that you have no real need of Christ, that you have no real need of a Savior because you're fine just the way you are, remember that Jesus let one thief perish in his sins. The one who was damned prayed, not thy will, but my will be done. The one who was saved prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. What will your prayer be?